do you know you know what it's like to have an uh, aha moment where kind of the lights come on? By looking at some of you right now, you don't, and you need to have it right now. <laughs> you know, uh, I was trying to think back when I was in school, and it seemed like I went to school from six till I was thirty-six. About the aha moments, you know, when you finally get it. And I realized I didn't have hardly any of those. I never really got it. But you, but you know what it's like. Or you're trying to put a toy together for a kid or a grandkid, and it's got 842 movable parts. And when you finally figure how to do that, it, it's, you know, it, feels, it feels good. Or you're working on your computer or you're having a computer problem, and you finally figure out right before you're fixing to get the shotgun out. You figure out how to make that thing. You know, the aha, when the lights come on, you understand those kind of moments. Well, in Second Peter chapter 1 this evening, verses 16 through 19, I think are kind of aha moments. I think they're moments where if we look at it, again, and this is not easy treading. This is kind of thick stuff, but there's things spoken in these verses that are profound not saying I will communicate it profoundly, but I'm saying that they are profound and, and that I hope that we will get it. Now, here's an interesting thing. I was planning on preaching this sermon two, two weeks ago and I got the stomach virus. You remember that? And then last week, for the first time ever, church got rained out, at least in my memory. So uh, this sermon has been on the, uh, it, it's been on the cooker for a while and we got it good and warmed up, hopefully. So let's begin with this. Talk about some aha moments. The, the message of Peter comes from an eyewitness. Now, this is important because a lot of people today doubt the Bible's the Word of God. And one of the things they'll say is, well, it was written, you know, by men and uh, it was written, you know, hundreds of years after Jesus. And the Greek word for that is baloney. And even in Peter's day, they were beginning to question things that he was saying and that the, the, uh, the, the Orthodox Christian leaders were saying in verse 16, we are not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. Peter's hitting it pretty hard there. Leave the verse there or back it up if you would. We're not making up clever stories. The word clever there means in a sinister sense. A cunningly devised story. And the word story there is interesting. It's where we get our, our word fable or myth. God speaking through Peter is saying we didn't come up with some sinister, cleverly devised, sneaky, mythological stories when we are telling you about Jesus Christ, the miracles that he did, about him dying on the cross, about the transfiguration we're going to see in a moment, about him walking out of the tomb. These aren't myths. And folks, in the world that they lived in, myths were, were huge. The, the whole Greek and Roman god system with Jupiter and Zeus and Poseidon, the god of the seas, and Hercules, all that, that is all mythology. And people in this time knew it very well. I was trying to think of some of the myths or, or, or fables, you know, cute stories we grew up with. Paul Bunyan and the, he had a blue ox. Anybody remember what the no, ox's name was? It was named Babe. Myths of modern times. The Dallas Cowboys are a professional football team. That is, that is a fable. 
my daughter is like a Cowboys worshiper. It's just last year was one of the greatest seasons in my life because uh, they were not very good. Here's another myth. The presidential candidates are looking out for your good and only want to serve you. That is called a tall tale. Amen? Amen, it is. But when Peter said, we're telling you about Jesus Christ, it's not some man-made myth. It is not fiction. In verse 16, he says, For we're not making up clever myths when we told you about the powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. We are eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. Everything we're telling you about, we're eyewitnesses to. Now, if you're taking notes, 1 John chapter 1. These aren't the only scriptures, but these are some great ones. 1 John 1, verse 1 through 3. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. Verse 2. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him and we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who has, who is eternal life. He was with the father and then he was revealed to us. And in verse three, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Isn't that great? And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, Peter says it, and John's saying it, and it's said in other places, we're not making this up. We touched the dude. We saw the dude. We heard the dude. And, and there's actually liberal Bible scholars who say that Second Peter wasn't written by Peter. It was written by someone later on. This is Peter talking, guys. Peter talking, we saw him, we touched him, we experienced him. His majestic splendor, his glorious splendor. He's saying the death and resurrection of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ that we're going to again see in just a moment. We didn't make these things up. We were there. We saw it. We experienced it. Now, here's something you need to write down. One thing you'll hear people say, again, I mentioned earlier, is that the New Testament, that the Bible was written hundreds of years after Jesus. Nothing is farther from the truth. In two weeks, I will be preaching verse 19 or 20 and 21, which we'll talk a little bit more about this. But here's a real important, super important thing. When when, When they got ready to decide which books would be in the New Testament, the 27 that ended up there, there was a lot of books out there. One of the main criteria was is the book had to have been written by an eyewitness of Christ or someone who knew an eyewitness of Christ. And the books that were accepted had to be, they had to be written within the lifespan of Jesus Christ. Now, not in his particular lifespan, but within the lifespan of people that knew him. You heard about the gospel of Judas that came out. That was like 150 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Very conservative people would say the whole New Testament was written by A.D. 70, which is about 35 years after the death or resurrection. It's very possible Revelation was written probably about A.D. 90, which stretches that out. But that's still 55, 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. In other words, everything we have in the New Testament was written in a time when people could refute it. That's huge, isn't it? 
the Vietnam War ended about 43 years ago, 1973, I think, if my history is correct. Andy, is that correct? 72, 73, somewhere, the Vietnam War or ended around there. Okay, here's the deal. Vietnam War's been gone a long time. True? But, but if you start writing stories about the Vietnam War that were completely false, there is a lot of people that might shoot you. <laughs> There's a lot of people that would stand up and say, that's a lie. We were in the war. We were there. Our brothers served. Our family served. We know people. We saw it on TV. We read the books. We watched the reports. You can't right now make up a lot of fables about the Vietnam War because there's too many people still here that experienced it and can refute it. That's what Peter's saying here, dudes. I saw these things. The, the message of First and Second Peter, the Gospel of Mark, which we believe is taken from Peter's life, folks, these were written by an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? What you hold in your hands is very, very valid. Or whether it's an iPad or your phone or whatever your Bible's on, it's very, very valid. But let me give you a second thing. And, And all this comes together. We have a clear validation on Jesus. We have a clear validation of who Jesus is. We've got a message from an eyewitness. And here's some things that Peter says. Peter says, his glory was seen. The glory of Jesus Christ, not just the human Jesus, but the Jesus, the the God-man was seen. In verse 16, we're not making up clever stories. We told you about the powerful coming of the Lord Jesus. We saw his majestic splendor. His majestic splendor means his glory, his excellence. Peter's saying this is the the, the God nature of Jesus that we saw. This is the the weightiness of who he is and who he was. When did this happen? If you you write this down, we're going to show you. In Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 8, James, Peter, and John went up onto a mountain with Jesus. There's three closest friends, and I I think we need to look through the story. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them to a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. And his clothes became dazzling white. If you read in Revelation chapter 1, you will see a very big uh, resemblance here. Whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. How many of you would have liked to have been there? Wouldn't that have been cool? And Peter, you got to love Peter. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful us here. Let's make some shelters as memorials, one for you, Moses, and one for Elijah. And he said this because he didn't really know what else to say. I'm in Proverbs right now, my personal Bible study. And Proverbs tells us the best thing to say when you don't know what to say is nothing. Peter had not read Proverbs through thoroughly, correct? Verse 7. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone. They saw only Jesus with them. And in verse 9, it basically says, Jesus told them, Keep your mouths quiet about this until I have died and arisen. What a great story. We have two potential sites we want to show you. One is Mount Tabor. Traditionally, they have said this was the mountain 
And Mount Tabor is a little west of the Sea of Galilee. This is all going to be north of Jerusalem. But, but recent scholars have said they believed it was Mount Hermon, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, here's what I think is important the Bible doesn't tell us. And it probably doesn't tell us so people won't go to that mountain and worship the ground instead of worshiping the Jesus who was transfigured on the ground. So where it happens not nearly as important is knowing that Peter says, Look, dudes, Jesus was a man. A lot of people can confirm that. We want to tell you he's God. (laughs) He's God. In fact, we had the privilege of seeing him how we're going to see him someday. That's awesome, isn't it? It's validating. But not only that, we have... The voice of the Father affirmed him. Now, think about this. This is a great thing, too. In in, in verse 17, excuse me, verse 17 and 18, when he received honor and glory from the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God, that's the Shekinah glory of God, said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter was telling them, and he's telling you and me, that while they were on that mountain and Jesus was transfigured, they saw the God nature in Jesus clearly that day, that if that wasn't enough, a cloud hovers over him. And Moses and Elijah are there too, which has to be a pretty intimidating. And then the voice of God speaks from a cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Is that not tremendous? You know, uh, about a week or two ago, ben, Dr. Ben Carson got out of the Republican uh, presidential campaign. And then a few days after that, he voiced that he was going to back Donald Trump. And when, when Ben Carson voiced that, the world shook, didn't it? At least the Republican world. I want to tell you, that's nothing compared to how Peter, James, and John must have felt when they heard the voice of God the Father say, This is my son. This happened one other time in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus got baptized and a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly beloved son who brings me great joy. You want some validation about Jesus? Peter says, I can give it to you. We, we witnessed him. We saw him. We touched him. We saw his glory, the weight of his majesty. And by the way, we heard from a cloud, God the Father saying, this is the one. That validates our Jesus. Let me give you a third thing that I think is so important. This reminds us Jesus is who he said he was. Folks, when, when, when you are transfigured and glory and light is shooting out of you and God the Father speaks from a cloud and says, this is my son, and there were eyewitnesses sharing that, you're somebody special. Jesus Christ said some things about himself that you need to consider. Jesus said, I, I and the Father are one. That's blasphemous to a Jewish person even today. That's blasphemous to a Muslim person today. Go to Iran and say that and duck. Jesus said, I am the I am. In Exodus chapter 3, when God was telling Moses who he was, he said, I am. I am. Jesus was saying, I am God. I am the Father and one. He is the great I am. I am. Again, you don't think that's offensive? 
say that to some people of other faiths. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Folks, that's, that's a verse you need to memorize because that is a verse that separates people. I, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said this. He said, by Jesus' claims, he was either a lunatic, a liar, or he really is Lord. And Peter's saying here, he's really Lord. <laughs> he's really Lord. When you look at your Bibles and you look at who Jesus is, it's validated over and over and over. Listen, here's a strange thing that comes out of this too. This passage affirms the second coming of Christ. It, it affirms the, the return of Jesus Christ. In verse 16, Peter says, we're not making up clever stories. We told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor. Now, the powerful coming there, at first you, you could miss that, but he's also here. He's talking about the second coming. Already, and we're going to see in 2 Peter chapter 3, this is 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And Jesus had told people, I came to earth once and I'm coming again. And they're beginning to say, no, he's not. He said he was coming and he hadn't come yet. By the way, it's been 2,000 years. A lot of people are saying he said he was coming and he hasn't come yet. And they were saying it's a myth. It's a, it's a fable. He's not going to really return. And, and here's what Peter said. Look, dudes, Jesus said he was coming. And we saw, we saw a, had a foretaste of what that's going to be. In your Bibles, that word coming is the Greek word perusia which that word perusia in, in the Greek culture, it meant the coming of royalty to a city or to a community. And in the, in the New Testament, it's used to talk about the second coming. And what it's saying here is that the coming of the king is going to happen. Jesus came the first time. You remember when that was? We call that what, church? Thank you. Church, what do we call that? We only have two ladies up front who know Christmas when Jesus was born. Do you remember that? How many of you remember that? You give presents and eat too much too. Jesus was born. And, and he, he came that first time. You remember he came born of lowly peasant parents. He was born in a barn and laid in a cattle feeder. And the Bible says someday when he comes again and he is coming again that the sky's going to bust open and that he's not coming as a baby or as a peasant. He's coming as a reigning king. He's coming in his majestic glory. And Peter said, some of you don't believe that. We've already had a little taste of that. And I can tell you, it's real and it's going to happen. You see, what Peter's saying is these things we've experienced, we didn't experience them just for, for ourselves. They didn't experience them just for 2,000 years ago. They experienced them for you and me so that we would believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. So I want to give you one big last thought on this. Cling tightly to your Bibles. Cling tightly to your Bibles. Your Bible, number one, is totally trustworthy. Look in verse 19. He says, because of this experience, this transfiguration, we have greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. The word of the prophets. What was he talking about here? Was he talking about just the Old Testament prophets? Most scholars would say he was at least talking about the Old Testament. I think certainly he's talking about the whole Bible. 
And what Peter's saying, look, he's saying, I've believed the Bible, but everything I've read about Jesus in the Old Testament, I've seen that it's true. And, and that you can trust your Bible. Peter said, look, we, we've seen his glory. We've touched him. We've been with him. We heard the voice of the Father. Everything that the Bible has taught up to that point about him matches up with what we've experienced it, and it still does today. Listen, you can trust your Bible. Remember what I said uh, earlier uh, about the, the validation of the Bible? You know, and this is several years old. There may be more now, but there's at least 5,600 full New Testament manuscripts that date back, some of them not too, too far from Jesus' time. You don't find that kind of uh, material in, in ancient literature of any kind. At the New Te- Listen, the New Testament is the most documented ancient document that there is. It is trustworthy. So here's the second thing. Keep your nose and your heart in it, and it'll help you. Some of us want to keep our nose in it. We want to read it and study it and break down words and all that's fine. But if your heart's not in it, it's not doing you any good. You're just a Pharisee. The Bible's not meant to be read to be argued. It's meant to be read to be lived out. In verse 19, because of this experience, we have greater confidence. And he says, you must pay close attention to what's been written. Their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place. Pay close attention. Take heed. Listen to and apply the Bible. Take it in and live it out carefully. Let me ask you something. If you were to, if you were to sit down your week, week, now I'm not talking about your work time, I'm talking about your leisure time, and you were to actually put a pen to how much time you spend in, in a church service uh, or a Bible study class and reading your Bible personally versus how much time you spend watching TV or uh, reading the paper or playing games or how would it flesh out? It's a good question, isn't it? Uh, second question is, are you reading the Bible for information or transformation? Some of us here have been to seminary. You want, a, you want a, an information center? Go to a seminary. And you'll want to jump off a tall building after a couple of years, too. Information puffs up what 1 Corinthians 8, 1. But the Bible lived out transforms us. He says here it's like a a, a lamp shining in a dark place. The word lamp there was an oil... Uh, an oil-fed, handheld lamp. It's interesting. We get our, our English word phosphorus from this lamp shining. And phosphorus is a chemical element. It's a solid. It manifests itself in three ways. But one way, and the way it's talking about here, is a yellow, luminous, glowing uh, solid. And he's saying the Word of God is it's a light. Psalms 119.105 says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a guide to my path. How many of you, uh, everybody here is old enough and you've experienced when the lights go out, the power goes out in your area, it's dark at night and it's stormy, that gives you a different perspective on life, doesn't it? Uh, and, And we live out in the country, so, you know, there's not a lot of cars. And so it's just way different when the lights go out. It's stormy, and it's in the middle of the night. And and if you don't have a flashlight, you're in trouble. You see, that was the world they lived in. When when it got dark, everything was candlelit or fire. And and you can imagine, 
you didn't have any of the lighting we had today, how dark it was. The lamp, the lamp was what kept you from getting bit by a snake. It kept you from tripping and falling. It, it, it kept you from getting mugged by somebody around the corner. It, it was essential to your life. He's saying here the Bible is essential to our lives. It, it's, a, it's a light in a dark world. You, you go, I don't know what's right. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know how to handle this situation or do, to do this or do that. The, the place you start is with the Bible. It's with the Word of God. But you've got to know the Word of God, and you've got to be committed to living it out. So he tells us here it's trustworthy. Live it out. And the last thing is th- that we see in this passage here is that if we do, you won't be disappointed. You see, a lot of times we go through life where we wonder, well, what's in it for me? How's this going to play out for me? How's this going to flesh out for me? The end of verse 19, he says this. You must pay close attention to what they wrote. Their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and, the, and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. The morning star to the Jewish person was the offspring of David, the bright morning star. It was Jesus Christ. And I think the best way to understand what he was saying to them and to you and me is we live in a dark world. And we're living by faith right now. And sometimes that's real tough, isn't it? And, and that you, you, sometimes you're living by faith, but you feel like you're just groping in the dark. And you have that lamp that gives you enough light just to keep in front. That's, you know, when I get to heaven, that's one thing when I ask God. Why didn't you let us see what was ahead five years? God wants you to walk by faith every day, doesn't he? And sometimes that light is just enough to see the next day. But here's what he says. If you will stay true to Jesus, you'll stay true to his word, your hope is not going to be disappointed. It's going to be fulfilled. Now, this may sound scary. For if you're a believer, you know when that happens, when, when, when your faith becomes sight is when you die. It is terribly sad to lose a believer you love. But you know what? It's not sad for them when they walk into heaven, is it? Because their faith becomes sight. Their hope is realized. And, and those of us who are still alive, when Jesus comes back, and it may be all of us, could happen tonight, may not happen for 200 more years. But when it happens, hope's going to be realized, didn't it? When the sky bursts open and the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes down and we see him. So that's what he's saying. Hang in there. Stay with it. Stay with it. And, and someday, I'm going to tell you, 100 years from now in Jesus Christ, all of us are going to be really happy. Amen. Our hope will be realized. So this evening, as always, I throw the ball back at you, and I ask you, what will you do with what God's saying to you tonight? Maybe you're here and you're a Christian, and maybe you're a little off course. I want to challenge you where you're standing or at the altar to get your life back on course. Clue it in. Zero it in on Jesus and his word. Maybe you want to come pray at the altar, pray with the minister. You come do that. You would like to join the church tonight. We would love for you to do that. You can come and join us. You can join after church, but we'd love for you to do that. You're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You've never crossed that line with Jesus Christ. Oh, what a great night it would be to do that. You come tonight. We'll help you come to Jesus. Let's stand. We're going to sing a... Uh, him or two, a stanza to invitation to give you an opportunity to.